Old Testament reading for today is from Ezekiel chapter 9. The New Testament sermon text is Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. In Ezekiel chapter 9, we read an account of a vision that the prophet Ezekiel saw long, long ago before Christ ever was born. And it comes in a series of visions here that have primarily to do with announcing the judgment that is going to come upon Israel. Israel, throughout much of its history, struggled to obey and to keep the commandments of God. God was merciful and patient. Uh, But the day did come where God was going to bring judgment upon Israel for their sins. And here, the vision that Ezekiel sees and describes to us here in in, in Ezekiel chapter 9 has to do with the, 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 the judgment of God that is looming large over the people in this time. Then he cried in my ears, we read in verse 1, with a loud voice saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. I will emphasize again, this is a vision that the prophet Ezekiel saw. And when they went in and stood beside the bronze altar, that is, within the temple, Now the glory of the the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. In other words, put a mark on the foreheads of those who are grieved at the sin." that is committed within Israel and within Jerusalem. And to the others, he said, in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children with and, and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. Start there at the temple. And go out from there. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Evidently, those who were unfaithful were great in number. Those who were faithful were very few. The land is full of blood. Excuse me. Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. And behold, as for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back word, saying, I have done as you have commanded me. That is Ezekiel chapter 9. Let's go now to Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And I hope you can see why I read this Old Testament text. Uh, it will help us to understand what is meant by the sermon text for today, Revelation 7, verses 1 through 8. Here we read the words of John. In verse 1 he says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 
12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. So far the reading of God's holy word. We do pray that the Lord would bless the preaching and the application of it also. I think it is really important to recognize that we have come to yet another distinct portion of the book of Revelation. It's very important to recognize that all of chapter 7 goes together. But notice that it is divided into two parts. In this chapter, chapter 7, John describes to us two new and distinct visions that he, that he saw. Both visions are introduced with the words, after this. I want you to look at 7.1. The text says, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. But now drop your eyes down to verse 9, where we read, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And so the phrase, after this, uh, clearly refers to the order in which John saw the visions. He sees two new visions, first the one and then the other. And the one was seen after visions that preceded it. So after this, new vision described, then after this again, yet another vision uh, described. Now, I wonder, does it surprise you that I have said we have now come to yet another distinct portion of the book of Revelation? I I secretly kind of hope that it did surprise you when I said those words, and and here is why. I want you to remember that we have been slowly progressing through what is called the seal cycle. I know it's been a little while since we've been there. A couple of weeks I took off from preaching. Some of you have been giving me some hard time about that. I know you're joking, but... Um, We're back now to the book of Revelation. Uh, But we've been working through the seal cycle. Uh, John in chapter 5 saw in the right hand of God a scroll sealed with how many seals? Seven seals. And Christ, the Lamb of God slain for sinners, took the scroll and began to break the seals one at a time. Remember, when he broke the first four seals, horses and their riders came forward and they were permitted by God to take peace from the earth in various ways. When the fifth seal was broken, John was shown the souls of martyrs under the heavenly altar. They were the ones killed for uh, their testimony of Christ. They cried out with a loud voice, remember, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That was what was revealed to us when the fifth seal was broken. And when the sixth seal was broken, John was shown a vision of the last day, when God's wrath will be poured out upon the earth in full. And remember that John saw all men, great and small, hiding themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they were calling out to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Immediately after this, we have chapter 7. And this new and distinct portion of the book of Revelation. Why? Why do I wish that you would be surprised when I say we've come to a new and distinct portion of the book of Revelation? What's wrong? We have not yet come to the end of the seal cycle. The the scroll had seven seals on it, and only six have been broken thus far. If you turn over to chapter 8, you will see the seventh seal there. In verse 1, we read, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour The seventh seal has yet to be opened, and yet we're already being introduced to a new set of visions. This should kind of jar us a little bit. It should get our attention. Uh, The question we should ask if we are reading the book of Revelation carefully is, how are we to understand this interruption? For that is what it is. It's an interruption, isn't it? The scroll had seven seals on it. Only six have been opened, and now we are moving on to something new. New visions are shown uh, to John. How are we to understand this interruption? How are we to understand the two visions of chapter 7 and their relationship to what has come before and what will come afterwards? That's really the question the reader should be uh, jarred into asking. Uh, Many commentators refer to this chapter, chapter 7, and the two visions contained within as an interlude. I think it's really a good term. 
Uh, for the drama of the seal cycle has been rolling along steadily, hasn't it? We've been kind of caught up in it as we have seen described to us in these visions how things will be on earth in the time between Christ's first and second coming. We've been caught up in that narrative and those visions. Uh, the first seals have pictured for us uh, these things, but here in chapter 7 we have a break. It's almost as if we're invited to stand up and stretch our legs for just a moment before continuing on with the seventh seal. Uh, not just to stretch our legs, but to ponder more deeply the things that we have just heard and to perhaps consider what we have just heard from yet another vantage point. Uh, The interlude gives the reader or hearer a sense of delay. Uh, The truth communicated by this literary feature is that the end is not yet, but that things will go on for some time before what is portrayed in the sixth and seventh seals come to pass. Can you kind of understand this? We've been going through the book of Revelation very slowly, and so we might miss it because we've been so slow in our progression through this book. But if you were hearing it read all at once, or if you were reading it from beginning to end all at once, it would give a sense of delay. It's almost as if let's pause for a moment to consider some other things before moving on. And so I think the theological message communicated here is that Uh, Though the end will come suddenly one day, it is not yet. There is time. Uh, There is going to be some time that unfolds. And indeed, that is consistent with Christ's teaching, isn't it? Uh, You're going to see all sorts of things, wars and rumors of wars um, are are going to be present in this world. But the end is not yet. But the end is not yet. It's important to recognize that this exact same feature is found uh, within the trumpet cycle, which is described in Revelation 8, 6 through 11, 19. Pay attention to this. I think it's really fascinating. I hope that you do too. Uh, the trumpet cycle, when we come to it, we'll find that it's more intense than the seal cycle. It's more intense. Uh, for example, um, these, cre- these four uh, horsemen are given uh, the ability to harm a fourth of the earth in the seal cycle, but when we come to the trumpet cycle, a third of the earth is Affected. It, it, it's more intense, the judgments that are described there. Uh, but it's important to understand and to notice that there is an interlude inserted between the sixth and seventh trumpets, just as there was inserted between the sixth and seventh uh, seals. It too provides the reader with a sense of delay. But not so with the bowl cycle. You understand that there are going to be three cycles of seven that we encounter in the book of Revelation. First, the seals seven seals, then the trumpets, seven trumpets will be uh, blown, and then seven bowls will be poured out. But one of the main differences between the bowls and the trumpets and the seals is that when the bowls are poured out, they describe nothing but the end, and there is no interlude there, no delay, but rather things move quite quickly when the bowls are poured out. In chapter 16, the bowls are poured out speedily, one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. Only the words of Christ separate the sixth and seventh bowls. And here is what Christ says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be be seen exposed. So what is the message here? That when the end comes, it is going to come quickly, suddenly upon you. And when that last day comes, there will be no more delay. There will be no more holding back of the wrath of God at all, but rather on that last day, the day of God's wrath, God's wrath will be poured out in full and it will come quickly with no no opportunity given for repentance. Uh, The day of the Lord will indeed come suddenly, but here in the seal cycle and later on in the trumpet cycle, an interlude is inserted which, which provides the reader or the listener with this sense of delay so that we might ponder what has been said in the cycle preceding it. Uh, But what do the visions themselves of chapter 7 communicate? You understand I've been talking only about the literary feature of an interlude so far, but what about the visions themselves? What do they communicate? Uh, What do they mean? Well, I think they cause us to step back from the first six seals to look at things from yet another vantage point. And they provide answers to the questions raised by the breaking of the first six seals. If you're paying attention to what is communicated when those seals are broken, you should have some questions. The visions of chapter 7 provide us with more information and bring greater clarity to the question, 
how will things be for the people of God living in the age between Christ's first and second coming? That is what the seal cycle is all about, and the two visions of chapter 7 provide us with more information and bring us greater clarity in response to that question. I want you to think with me for a moment about what has been communicated so far with the breaking of the six seals. The first four revealed that God would permit calamity to come upon the earth. In the time between Christ's first and second comings, there will indeed be wars and rumors of wars and famines and plagues. That was clearly communicated with the breaking of the first four seals. It is also consistent with the teaching of Christ. Seal 5 encouraged us with the vision of the souls of martyrs. And where were they? They were in heaven. Remember, we can break all of God's creation into two broad categories. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the book of Revelation makes much of this, sometimes giving us a heavenly vision, sometimes giving us an earthly one. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, where were they active? They approached God's throne in heaven, but they were permitted to take peace from the earth. The fifth seal gives us a vision into heaven and the fact that those who had been martyred on earth were really alive with Christ in in heaven. We're comforted by that vision to know that to die for the sake of Christ is really to live. To die in Christ is really uh, to live. They are clothed and comforted by God as they wait for the consummation of all things. What question, excuse me, seal 6 provides us with a glimpse of how things will be on that last day when the Lord returns to pour out His wrath upon the ungodly. By the way, where does that happen? On earth. So we have an earthly focus and then a heavenly one and then an earthly one again. And, And here is the question I have for you. What question has yet to be addressed? I wonder, are you not left wondering how things will go for God's people on earth as they live in the midst of the calamity brought about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Are you not curious about that? It's revealed to us that these four horsemen are going to be permitted to do their work throughout all the earth. There's four of them to correspond to the points on the compass, north, south, east, and west. Their activity is going to be broad. It's going to be global. Uh, This has been revealed to us in the breaking of the first Four seals. Yes, we are comforted by the fact that to die in Christ is to be with Him in heaven spiritually. That is indeed comforting. And then again, we have this vision of the wrath of God being poured out upon all of mankind with the breaking of the sixth seal. Are you not wondering how will it go for Christians who live on earth in this time between Christ's first and second coming? It's the question I think we should that we should ask. Um, Also, I think the question raised by the wicked who were seen coming under God's wrath on the last day also needs to be answered. Do you remember this? The sixth seal was broken. The wicked, both small and great, fled from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the land, for the great day of the wrath has come. And here is how the end end of chapter 6 concludes. These who are fleeing from the wrath of God ask a very important question. What do they ask? Who can stand? Who can possibly stand? in the face of God's judgment. And what I am saying to you is that the two visions of chapter 7 provide answers to these questions. What about God's people who are living in this world, marked by trials and tribulations and calamities? What about them? How will they possibly persevere in the midst of it? And what about, what about the question that these who fell under the judgment of God were asking on that last day? Who can possibly stand? I, I want you to notice something here. Look at the second vision of chapter 7, beginning at 7-9. We'll come to this next week, but I want to point it out to you today. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And what were they doing? They were standing, weren't they? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. The language is not accidental. The question should be fresh on our minds. Who can possibly stand? And then in chapter 7, the second vision contained within it gives us a vision of all of the redeemed. Did they suffer under the, the wrath of God? Did they fall under God's judgment? No, we have an answer to it here. They are seen in heaven standing in the presence of God. Who can stand? The answer that chapter 7 verse 9 and onward provides is that it is those who have faith in Christ. 
who have been clothed in His righteousness and who have been cleansed by His blood, they are the ones who are able to stand before God. And how will the people of God possibly persevere in the midst of the trials and tribulations experienced on the earth which are common to this present evil age? Well, it's that question that is answered by the first vision of chapter 7, which is the text that we are considering today. Another way to ask it is, how will Christians persevere even as those four horsemen of the apocalypse are active on the earth? The simple truth that you must take away from Revelation 7, 1 through 8, is that God will preserve His people spiritually, in the midst of the trials and tribulations of this present evil age. That is the promise that is delivered to you by Revelation 7, 1 through 8. God will preserve His people spiritually in the midst of the trials and tribulations of this present evil age. This is the promise of God that should bring comfort to our souls. God knows His people. You and I might look out upon a mass of humanity and find it impossible to distinguish between those who belong to Christ and those who do not. Isn't that true? If you look out on a multitude of people, we have no way of knowing who it is that belongs to Christ and who does not. There is no mark that distinguishes the believer from the non-believer, no physical or permanent mark that distinguishes them. But God, when He looks down upon humanity, He knows. He knows who belong to Him. He has given them His name. He has sealed them with His Spirit, His promise is to preserve them. Though we will indeed pass through trials and tribulations of many kinds, we know that the Heavenly Father will keep us faithful and true in the midst of it. I want to consider this text together bit by bit. In 7.1, John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Who are these four angels, and what do the four winds of the earth that they are holding back represent? What is going on here? What is this vision about? Uh, Really, nothing more can be known about the angels except that they are ministering spirits of God, servants of the living God, and that the significance of the four winds of the earth is made clear from the immediate context. This should not really be all that confusing to us. I want you to remember that when the first four seals were broken by Christ, Four horses with riders on them appeared before the throne of God. Each of them was given authority and was permitted by God to go out into all the earth and to take peace from it by way of war and famine and plague. You remember that there were four of them, remember. And remember that the significance of the four horsemen of Revelation 6 is best understood against the backdrop of what, is revealed, what was revealed to Zechariah the prophet hundreds of years earlier in Zechariah chapter 6. He too, remember this, and I emphasize this in the sermon that I preached on the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Zechariah in his day was was curious about the same thing that we're curious about. How will things go in the world for the people of God as they live on earth? He was curious about these things, and he too was shown a vision involving four sets of horses. Remember that? Zechariah chapter 6. These were sent out to patrol the earth and would eventually be permitted to take peace from it. God would use them to bring judgment upon the nations and to vindicate his people. But I want you to listen carefully to the words of Zechariah the prophet. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? In other words, help me understand this vision that I have just seen. What are these these four sets of horses all about? What do they represent? And the angel answered Zechariah and said to him, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And so in Zechariah chapter 6, the four sets of horses are associated with the four winds of heaven. These are the agents through which God would bring about His judgments in all the earth. And so when we read in Revelation 7-1, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree, we are to understand that these angels, these ministering spirits of God, have the responsibility, listen to this, to restrain the destructive forces. These ministers of judgment mentioned both in Zechariah 6 and also Revelation 6. That is their task. These ministering 
forces, spirits, are, are permitted to take peace from the earth. We have already been told about that. But here in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, we back right back up to the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and we have yet another perspective on them, that God, though He has permitted them to do their work, is restraining them, is restraining them. It is true that God executes His judgments upon the ungodly by way of permitting calamity, but it is also true that God is actively restraining evil continuously. Aren't you thankful for that? Have you ever thought about that? We tend to look at the world and say, how could things possibly be so bad? Why don't we ask another question? How in the world are things not much worse? Have you ever thought of it that way, from that perspective? I mean, it is amazing how we can look at things from different perspectives, right? The glass is half empty. How can things possibly be so bad? How about seeing things with the glass half full? How is it that things are not much worse? How is it that anarchy does not prevail across the globe? How could it be that world wars aren't continual? Let's think of things that way. The answer to the question here revealed to us in Revelation 7.1 is that we have a God who in His mercy restrains our wickedness. And I use our here in reference to all of humanity. Were He to remove His restraint, we would be overrun by wickedness. If He were to give the ungodly over to the desires of their heart fully, they would devour one another Completely, God in His mercy restrains evil. I'm sure that you are able to see yet again an example of the fact that the book of Revelation is not ordered chronologically. Do you see it again? It is not that the events of 7, 1 through 8 will happen after the events described in chapter 6 in history. Instead, 7, 1 takes us back to the beginning of the first four seals and the four horsemen, to give us another perspective on them. Indeed, they were permitted to take peace from a a quarter of the earth, but the sovereign king of the universe restrains them. He restrains them. And why does he restrain them? For what purpose? Verse 2 and 3, verses 2 and 3 tell us. Read with me here in in verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The ministers of judgment are restrained until the servants of God are sealed on their foreheads. And what does this mean exactly? And I think the Ezekiel 9 passage that I read at the beginning of the sermon is is helpful at this point. In that passage, the prophet Ezekiel describes a vision that he saw concerning the judgment that would come, not upon the world in that instance, but upon who? Upon the nation of Israel. The nation had grown exceedingly sinful and God would bring judgment. And, and, And what did Ezekiel see? He saw executioners, ministering spirits who were given the task of passing through the city, beginning at the temple to slay the unrighteous. They were to carry out God's judgments upon the unrighteous and the unfaithful in Israel. But notice that in this vision, the executioners were not permitted to begin until the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist passed through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. In other words, the promise to the people through the prophet was this, God's judgment would come upon Israel, but the judgment would not be indiscriminate. Rather, God knew those who belonged to Him. He would preserve them in the midst of the judgment that was to come upon all of Israel. The wicked would fall, but the righteous would stand. There would be a remnant preserved in the midst of the judgment. Ezekiel 9 helps us to understand Revelation 7. The language about marking and sealing uh, clues us into the fact that we should use Ezekiel 9 to help us understand Revelation 7. A similar thing is symbolized here. Uh, the time, this time, it's not the judgment of Israel that is portrayed, but God's judgment upon the whole earth. 
You notice that, that these ministering spirits are at the four corners of the earth, they're given the task of judging the whole earth. And this time it is not the remnant of Israel that is marked on the forehead, but all of the servants of God, that is the language used, in all the earth. They are not said to be marked, I think it is interesting, but they are said to be sealed, sealed with the seal of God on their foreheads, just as those in the Ezekiel 9 prophecy were marked on their foreheads. The word has, the word sealed, if we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to be sealed? The word sealed has already been used in the immediate context, hasn't it? Remember that the scroll that was seen in God's right hand was sealed with seven seals. The seal communicates ownership. Whose scroll was it? God's scroll. It also symbolizes protection. The seals guard and protect. The scroll of God uh, would not be opened by anyone unworthy. Only someone worthy to open it could open it. And so the seal was guarded or protected. The scroll was guarded or protected by uh, the seals. So, uh, so too, the seal placed upon the servants of God communicates ownership and protection. These servants belong to who? They belong to, to God. They bear His name. The promise here is that He will guard them and protect them. The 144,000 mentioned in this text will again appear in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation. And there in 14.1, we are told that the 144,000 had Christ's name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And so that clarifies for us a little bit of what is meant by Sealed Here in Revelation 7, they are sealed on their foreheads, but in Revelation 14, specifically we're told that they had the name of God the Father written on their foreheads. Clearly, the seal given to the servants of God has something to do with ownership. These are God's people. He possesses them. He owns them. They belong to Him, and He is here promising to preserve them, protect them, to keep them. But what exactly is the seal? Uh, is it a physical mark? That is something we should ask, right? Well, tell me, were the faithful in the days of Ezekiel marked with a literal physical mark on the forehead to protect them against the, the judgment to come? No. Ezekiel saw a vision. And the, phys- the mark that they received on their forehead from the man clothed in linen symbolized this spiritual reality that, yes, judgment was coming. Yes, Israel was going to be overrun. And from a human perspective, it might seem as if the judgment is just indiscriminate. The righteous and the unrighteous all caught up in it. But here, Ezekiel is being told that, that God knows who, the, who, who belong to him. And he will keep them in the midst of the trial. It was not a physical mark. But it was symbolic and it represented a spiritual reality that God knows who are his. There is a remnant amongst Israel. The same is true of of the seal here in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, We are not to expect that the people of God are to literally bear some mark, some physical mark upon them that distinguishes them from all the peoples of the earth, but there is a spiritual truth being communicated here. And ultimately, it is best to understand the sealing as the sealing of the Holy Spirit. The sealing of the Holy Spirit. I think that is what this seal of Revelation 7 represents. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22. Paul there writes, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Language is very significant here. The spirit has sealed us. The spirit is like a guarantee to us that we are God's. And He is ours, and He will keep us until the end. It is the Spirit that seals the Christian. Ephesians 1, 13-14 says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is, again, same language, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In other words, the Spirit seals us, and He is the one who will keep those who belong to God to the very end until we lay a hold of the full possession of the inheritance earned for us by Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
the Spirit keeps us until we acquire the full possession of the inheritance on the day of redemption. The meaning is clear. God is able to preserve those who are true, uh, true to Him, even while He pours out His calamitous judgments upon the unrighteous. From our perspective, it seems as if the judgments of God are just pure indiscriminate, doesn't it? When calamity comes upon a nation, maybe in the form of war, we see the unrighteous and the righteous just caught up in it all at once. And yes, we even see Christians suffer in the midst of trials and tribulations. But here we have a heavenly perspective on this earthly reality. And the heavenly perspective is that God knows. He knows those who are His. And He has promised to preserve them spiritually in the midst of the trouble. In 7.4, These servants of God are described. John hears the number of them. The number of the sealed is 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. The Jehovah's Witnesses and some dispensationalists make the very same error. They assume that the number is to be taken what? Literally. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that in the end only 144,000 will reign in heaven. They have this view of of the the, the final state that is unbiblical through and through, that there will still be a distinction between heaven and earth, and some will reign in heaven while others will be on earth. And their view is that only 144,000 will attain to that heavenly uh, reward. Some dispensationalists believe that in the time before the end there will be 144,000 Jews who come to faith and will be sealed to protect them during the tribulation. It's a different view, obviously, than that of the Jehovah's Witnesses, but the two views share this in common. They take the number in a very wooden and literal way. I think this is a very strange thing to do in a book so filled with symbols. Every number we have encountered so far is symbolic. Why would we assume that this one is to be taken literally? Instead, it is far better to understand the number 144,000 to be a reference to all of God's elect, Jew and Gentile, living in the time between Christ's first and second coming. There are two things that point to this conclusion, maybe more, but I'll mention two. First, notice the number itself, and second, notice the listing of the tribes of Israel, how the tribes of Israel are listed. The number 12 is significant in the book of Revelation, isn't it? Uh, So too is the number 24, which is 12 times 2. Uh, The number 12 can stand for the tribes of Israel or the apostles of Christ. The number 24 stands for the two groups put together. That is the the tribes of Israel and the apostles of Christ together. Uh, We have here a way of referring to the people of God under the Old and New Covenants, you see. That is what the numbers 12 or 24 symbolize. But here we have the number 144,000. What is that number? It is 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 times 12 times 1,000. The number 1,000 is used in the Bible to symbolize a long but complete period of time, and that is how the number 1,000 will be used in Revelation chapter 20. And so what we have here then is a number which symbolizes the servants of God, that is what they are called in this text, Jew and Gentile, who live throughout the church age. A complete group. They're the ones sealed, kept by God in the midst of the trials and tribulations of this present evil age until we lay a hold of the inheritance earned for us by Christ Jesus at the consummation. Notice also the listing of the twelve tribes of Israel, and I think this is particularly fascinating There really is something curious going on here. The 12 tribes are listed out, 12,000 from each. But the way that they are listed should catch our attention. When we compare the listing of Israel here in Revelation 7 with the way that the tribes of Israel are listed in the Old Testament, we find that they do not exactly match. They do not exactly correspond. Look at the way that the tribes of Israel are listed in Genesis 35, 23 through 26. Jacob's sons are listed in this way. First, the sons of Jacob's wife Leah are listed. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. 
Next, the sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, are listed, Joseph and Benjamin. After that, the outsider sons of the concubines are listed. This is very important. They are put where? At the end. They are the sons of Jacob's concubines. They are listed. First, the sons of Bilhah, Dan, and Nephtali, and then the sons of Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. But I want you to compare that list with the listing of Revelation chapter 7. Notice three things. Three things are very important. First of all, Judah is given which position? First. Why would that be? Has Christ not just been introduced to us in the book of Revelation as the lion of the tribe of Judah? And so Christ is the head of this people. Do you see that? These people belong to who? They are all who belong to Christ. Christ is the one who is at the head of this people. He is the Messiah of Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Two, notice that idolaters have no place amongst this people here in the listing of Revelation chapter 7. The tribe of Dan throughout the Old Testament period was notorious for its idolatry. It's true throughout the Old Covenant. And I want you to notice something here, that Dan, the tribe of Dan, is not listed in Revelation chapter 7, but is instead replaced by Manasseh. What is going on here except this thing being communicated, that this people listed in Revelation chapter 7 is a pure people. The idolaters are thrown out from the list. The third thing to notice here, and I think this is very significant, is that those who are outsiders are elevated in the list of Revelation chapter 7. The sons of the concubines are moved from the bottom to the top of this list. And this illustrates or symbolizes the fact that the Gentile peoples have been included amongst the so-called sons of Israel in this new covenant age. Some might complain about my interpretation here, saying, and especially the dispensationalists would do this, they would say, look it, the text clearly says that these are the sons of Israel. Isn't that to be taken literally, that this must be a reference to 144,000 sealed from amongst the ethnic Jews? Well, I think what has already been said points us in a different direction. The number 144,000, 12 times 12 times 1,000. Also, what has been said about the listing of the tribes, that it is clearly and intentionally different from the listing of the tribes under the Old Testament. That points us already in a different direction. But I would say to those who complain that this text refers to this group as the tribes of Israel, um, needs to pay closer attention to the way that the New Testament uses the word Israel throughout. Sometimes it is used to refer to ethnic Jews, that is for sure, but often it is used to refer to the true people of God, that is Jew and Gentile, together. Remember the constant refrain in the New Testament that there is no longer Jew and Gentile. There is no longer a division between Jew and Greek. The middle wall of hostility has been broken down. We have been made one in Christ. The Gentiles have been grafted into Israel, have they not? And therefore they are rightly called Israel, for they are the people of God because they have faith in the God of Abraham. Pay attention to the way that the New Testament uses the word Israel, sometimes in in reference to ethnic Jews for sure, but oftentimes in reference to all of God's people, Jew and Gentile alike. The end of Galatians comes to mind where blessings are pronounced upon the church, there the church being called the Israel of God. Pay a special attention to the way that Jeremiah 31, 31 is interpreted in the New Testament. That passage should be so familiar to you by now, but it is there that the promise of the new covenant is given through the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Some dispensationalists stop there and say, I guess the new covenant has not come yet then. 
We're still waiting for this new covenant that will be made specifically with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It must be literally ethnic Israel, they say. But how disturbing that interpretation is when we go to the pages of the New Testament and see that this text is quoted more than any other Old Testament passage and everything is pointed in this direction. The new covenant has come and Christ is the mediator of it. The covenant is made in His blood. It is here now. And all who, are, who have faith in Christ are a part of this new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. I'm thinking here specifically of Hebrews chapter 10. Go and read it for yourself sometime. The way that Hebrews chapter 10 picks up Jeremiah 31 and says, it's here. And who is the covenant made with? Just the Jews only, ethnic Israel? No. But with all who have faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. That is who is represented here by the 144,000. It's all of the, the elect of God. Jew and Gentile, who will live throughout the time between Christ's first and second comings, they are the ones sealed by the Holy Spirit, preserved by God, because they bear His name. Christians, friends, will indeed face trials and tribulations in this world. Do you see it? Christians will face trials and tribulations in this world, but they will be kept by God through it, preserved by the power of the Holy Spirit by which they have been sealed. So how does this apply to us? Probably in many ways, right? Here are some suggestions. First of all, I do want to remind you, brothers and sisters, to not be surprised by trials and tribulations when they come upon you. Don't be surprised by them. Never has God promised to keep us from trials and tribulations. We will be kept from His wrath. That is true. We will be made to stand on that last day because we are clothed with Christ's blood and His righteousness. But never has God promised to keep us from trials and tribulations. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. 1 Peter 4.12 Secondly, learn to choose to rejoice in the trial by developing and maintaining a godly, heavenly, and eternal perspective on the world. This is the thing, this is one of the things that distinguishes the people of God from the ungodly. The people of God are able to see beyond this world to the world to come. They know God and understand that He is the one who works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 1 Peter 4.13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. We have to take these words seriously. Peter says, Rejoice. Rejoice in these trials and tribulations. Rejoice in these sufferings, because when you suffer, you share in Christ's sufferings. Did He not suffer? Well, in some sense, you are united to Him even more strongly when you suffer. They are Christ's sufferings because you are united to Him by faith. Rejoice in those. Rejoice in those. Because we know that God is accomplishing a work far greater than we could ever comprehend when we endure suffering in this world. We need to learn to rejoice. Thirdly, I think it is important for us to remember to walk by the Spirit. It is by the Holy Spirit that you have been sealed, isn't it? He has been given as a guarantee, a down payment, if you will. And He is the one who empowers you to live in this world as you ought. He is the seal. We are to walk by Him. We are to submit to Him. We are to rely upon Him for strength day after day after day. If you are struggling with sin, if you are struggling with doubt, if you are struggling to maintain a vibrant life in Christ, I do ask you the question, are you walking by the Spirit? relying upon Him in every aspect of your life? Or are you walking according to the flesh, relying only upon yourself? Are you praying? Are you praying daily, Holy Spirit, will you help me? Will you preserve me in the midst of the trial? Will you keep me, encourage my faith, cause me to grow? Are you in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ so that you might be encouraged by them according to the Spirit? Are you thinking deeply upon the Scriptures and laboring in Christ to obey them day after day? Are you partaking of the supper in faith? 
This is what it means to walk by the Spirit, you know, to partake in the means of grace that God has given us and to do it thoughtfully and to truly from the heart rely upon Christ and His Spirit whom He has sent to us as our helper. In every aspect of life, I love the song that we were singing earlier, um, that if in our own strength we confide, we're, 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 we're utterly helpless and lost, aren't we? I mean, we are just hopelessly lost. We are going to fall if in our own strength we uh, confide. We must look to Christ and we must trust in Him. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Galatians five sixteen through 17 The Spirit has been given to you as the seal. It is the Spirit who will preserve you. Walk in Him, relying not upon yourself, but upon the power of God given to you by the Father and by the Son. Fourthly and lastly, I would encourage you to take comfort in the fact that it is God who preserves us and not we who preserve ourselves. There's a promise to claim here in Revelation 7. Lord, you have promised to keep us in the midst of trial and tribulation. Lord, keep us, I pray. Indeed, the Christian life requires effort on our part, doesn't it? We will never deny that. But ultimately, it is God who has promised to preserve us and not we who preserve ourselves. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for what is shown to us here in Revelation 7. These two visions are a great comfort to us, Lord. I pray that we would grow more and more aware aware of all the provisions that you have made for us. We indeed rejoice at the fact that in Christ, through faith in Him, our sins have been washed away. We've been justified. We've been adopted as your children, Lord. These are wonderful truths, but, but we know that you have provided for us even more abundantly, even more richly, that, Lord, you have provided all that we need to thrive in this difficult place to preserve. You've provided all that we need to persevere in this difficult world. And Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, I know that trials and tribulations have been pressing in upon many of them, uh, in some instances, very heavily, Lord. I pray that you would increase their faith, that they would look to you, Christ, the risen Lord, that they would look to you, Father, and that they would look to the Spirit whom you have sent. Lord, encourage them. May they see with heavenly and spiritual eyes and lift their eyes beyond the stuff of this earth. Lord, increase our faith and help us to walk according to the faith, not by sight, but according to what you have revealed in your holy word. These things we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.